This is the Beacon Broadcast for Sunday, March 12, Greetings and welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church on Kirkpatrick Road in Burlington, North Carolina. The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. If you'd like to correspond with Pastor Barkman and the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201. The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Pastor Greg Barkman. And where are we in our study in the book of John? Those who are regular listeners, of course, will know where we are, but for those who may be tuning in for the first time today, we're glad you're here, and we are in John chapter 15. We have been making our way through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, thought by thought, doctrine by doctrine, application by application, for a good many months now, and we have come to that well-known section in chapter 15 where Jesus likens himself to a vine and Christians as the branches of the vine and also includes his father in this illustration as the husbandman, the one who is tending the vine and the one who prunes the vine, lopping off branches that are dead and totally unfruitful and trimming or pruning, sometimes a painful process, those branches that are firmly rooted to the vine but have obstacles that keep them from bearing the optimum amount of fruit. And so they are pruned that they might bear more fruit. A very helpful and instructive extended metaphor that teaches us many things. And we have been delving into it deeper and deeper, looking at various aspects and details before we move on in another section of this Upper Room Discourse. So thank you for joining me today, which is Sunday, March 12. And thank you, those who help us financially, to keep us teaching God's Word on this station. Now, we're looking primarily at the power of God's Word, and that is indicated in verses 3 and 7 primarily. In verse 3, Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. In verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And so, we're talking about the power of God's Word, the importance of God's Word, the necessity of God's Word to accomplish the great work which God is doing, is infallibly accomplishing in this world, particularly in the realm of redemption, but how important the Word of God, the Bible, 
the revelation which God has given, this revelation of his thoughts, this revelation of himself, this revelation of Jesus Christ, which, of course, is another way of saying a revelation of himself, and we're talking about God, the triune Godhead, but also a revelation of the Father. For Jesus Christ, in coming in the flesh, is a revelation of the Father, but what we know about that coming, having not had the opportunity of being there, walking with him, seeing him, watching him perform miracles, hearing words fall from his lips. We weren't there for any of that, but we have a written record, which is, in fact, the written word of God. It is the infallible record of who Jesus is and what he did and all of the things that he revealed about himself that are important for Christians today, 2,000 years after his time upon the earth, all of this is recorded in a book called the Bible. And the Bible is the foundation of our Christian faith. I hope you understand that. So many people seem to think that Christianity is primarily a matter of the heart, a matter of emotions, a matter of feelings, a matter of inward desires and so forth. And there's there's certainly an aspect of that, I would even say an important aspect of that, which is present in true Christianity, but it all begins upon and rests upon a foundation of the Word of God, the Bible, divine revelation. And without that, all of these other things are, well, they are very, very weak and very vulnerable to misunderstandings and to misdirections and to all kinds of problems. We, we have to be anchored in the Word of God. And so that's why we are taking this extended time to talk about these concepts, the first of which we have now covered. And when we're talking about the power of God's Word, there are two aspects that Jesus talks about in this vine branches metaphor. And the first one is the use of God's Word in conversion, and the second one is the use of God's Word in sanctification. And conversion is the one that is referred to in verse 3 and sanctification in verse 7. And I just remind you that Jesus said in verse 3 to his disciples in the upper room, preparing them for his crucifixion, he said, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken unto you. Boy, that is quite a statement, isn't it? If we were talking about the cleansing, which is the cleansing of justification, you are clean. That is because of the new birth, which has enabled you to trust in Christ for salvation and therefore to be declared just justified. We're justified by faith. And so when exercising faith in Christ and in the promises of salvation, we are justified before the judgment bar of God. He is the judge of all the earth, and he has a record of all of our wrongdoings, and those are wiped away. We are cleaned. We are cleansed. We are justified. We are, our, our sinful record which condemns us, is completely removed. It is expunged. The record no longer exists. We are clean. But how did that happen? Verse 3 tells us, because of the word 
which I have spoken unto you, that's the powerful instrument that God has used to accomplish this amazing work of conversion, this amazing work that justifies us before the judgment bar of God. The instrument that God uses in this is his word, obviously only as empowered by his spirit, but the word, the word, that's the part we have. That's the part that we handle. That's the part that we can declare to others, and we need to have more confidence in the Bible as the instrument of conversion. Christ's disciples were cleansed because of the word which he had spoken unto them. Anyone who is saved is saved because of the word which is spoken unto them. As I deal with people in their various understandings and misunderstandings of Scripture, one of the things I have run into along the way, not commonly, not, not frequently, I should say, but nevertheless run into along the way, is people who so emphasize the sovereignty of God in salvation that they ignore the God-appointed human instrumentality that is also involved in the work of redemption. It seems like most people have difficulty holding in their minds these two aspects, number one, human responsibility, and number two, divine sovereignty. And the majority of people lean so heavily upon human responsibility that in some way or another, they deny or reduce or minimize what the Bible teaches about divine sovereignty. And for people like that, you can't talk to them about the biblical doctrine of election. You can't talk to them about God's total sovereignty in salvation, that he is in sovereign control of that work of salvation from beginning to end, because they see verses that talk about human responsibility, that we are called upon to believe, that we must believe, that unless we believe, we will not be justified, and so forth and so on. And they, only only being able to see that part, they can't reconcile that with the sovereign work of God, the sovereignty of God part, and so they 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 deny the sovereignty of God, which is a horrible mistake. But, and here's what I'm getting to, occasionally you find people that do it the other way around. They've gotten a hold of the sovereignty of God in salvation, but they hold on to that so tightly that they end up denying human responsibility, human instrumentality in the work of conversion. And so occasionally I've run into those along the way who deny the necessity of the Word of God in the work of conversion. They say, well, God's able to regenerate people apart from the Word, and absolutely He is able to, but what does His Word say He uses? It's not what He's able to do, it's what He says He does. And I keep taking you back. I quoted this, I think, on the broadcast last week and maybe the week before. But I keep taking you back to that familiar passage in Romans chapter 10, which tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith, and without faith, we can't be saved. That that passage makes that clear. And so that whole passage is predicated upon 
this truth revealed by God that in the work of conversion, God has chosen to use the message of the gospel, the, the instrumentality of his word, the proclaimed word, which men must hear and believe, and of course do not believe and cannot believe apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless they must hear it and believe it if they're going to be saved. And I, as I say, I hear people occasionally over the years who've objected to that. Well, that's not necessary. God can save people apart from that if he wants to. Of course he can. And God could make a thousand more worlds if he wants to. But the question is, does he want to? Has he? Has, has he done that? And in a sense, I suppose we could say, yes, he has. Look at the, look at the um, starry universe and you'll see all kinds of bodies out there. But isn't it interesting, in spite of all of the claims to the... Um, what should I say? The expectation that we're going to find another world like this one that is that is conducive to to uh, living creatures that has has the right mix of water and oxygen and the right atmosphere and the right this and the right that in order to based upon the theory and, and the presupposition of evolution that somewhere out there there's got to be a world that has the same conditions that are ripe for the same evolutionary um, developments that we've had in this world. And therefore, we've got somebody out there in the universe that, that uh, we're, going to, we're going to encounter if we keep looking so that we can find some some world that's like ours and some creatures that are like us out there in this world it's got to be i mean the 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 uh, <clears throat> the vastness of the universe and the the uh, assumption the the accepted presupposition that evolution explains how life appears on this planet makes it almost inevitable that there's got to be something like that somewhere and yet, so far, it hasn't been discovered. We, we keep discovering more and more and more things, and yet the one thing we don't discover is another world like this one with life like this one. It would almost tend to make you think that this one is unique, that God intended to make one world like this with one humanity like this, and that was his intention. Couldn't he have made others? Of course. He could have made a hundred others, a thousand others, a million other worlds like this one. The question is not what can God do. The question is what has God done. And in the case of what I just described, I'm assuming that we're not going to find that, but I don't know that for sure because God really has not specifically said in the Bible that I only made one world, and so you'll never find another one like this one. I think there's a lot of indication of that, but there is no clear statement of that. But when it comes to the work of salvation, the statements are so clear. How can you miss them? How can you deny them? I'm going to go to that passage that I have quoted several times and read some of it to you. Because it is so clear and is so foundational here. For the scripture says, 
Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's a quotation, but it's talking about salvation. You back it up. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How are you going to be saved? How are you going to be saved? By confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. Verse 10, Romans 10, 10, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Well, yes, one believes with the heart and the righteousness, but what does one believe? One believes the gospel. One believes the word of God. One believes the revelation of God. This is the word of God, is the instrumentality in salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for, if we go, well, go on, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call on him. Well, couldn't God save someone apart from this? Well, that's not the issue. The issue is not what can he do. The issue is what does he do? What does he say he has done and will do? For verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then this, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? You have to have something to believe. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? There has to be a message to be heard for men to believe it. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Someone has to proclaim the word for them to hear the word, for them to believe the word. And how shall they preach unless they are sent and so forth? It's God's design that people are going to be converted through the instrumentality of his word. Yes, 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 that operation requires the empowering, enabling work of God's spirit to make the proclamation of the gospel effective in hearts. We do know some people hear it and are totally unaffected by it or resistant to it. They do not believe, and others hear it, and they do believe. And those who neglect and who reject and who overlook and who deny the parts of the Bible that speak of the sovereignty of God in salvation explain all that on the basis of man's free will, this unfettered free will that in order to work the way that some people suppose and missuppose, misunderstand that it works, has to be unaffected by sin and by the fall. It's just this neutral thing out there that that uh, is somehow un- uninfluenced by man's nature, uninfluenced by his heart, uninfluenced by his spiritual death, uninfluenced by his spiritual blindness. Oh, none of those things seem to have any influence upon this wonderful free will that can that can uh, freely choose either way. No, you've got it wrong. You're not paying attention to all that the Bible teaches us. But yes, by the work of God's Spirit to change man's heart, man does exercise his will, and he does so because the Holy Spirit has worked within his heart to cause him to, to hear and understand and therefore to be able to and to desire to believe the gospel. But this keeps going back to this other part, that the gospel must be proclaimed. We don't want to deny either side of the equation. Could God save people directly without the use of the gospel? Of course, he could. He can do 
He can do it. He has the power to do it. He could do it. He, he has the right to do whatever he wants to do, whatever he wishes to do. But the point is, how has he done it? How does he do it? And the Bible tells us how. So to deny that is to deny God's word. Just as much as to deny the work of God's Spirit and the necessity of God's Spirit in conversion is to deny God's Word. So, to deny the necessary instrumentality of the Word of God in the work of conversion is to deny God's Word. We don't want to be guilty of denying God's Word in any way at all. And here it is in the in the Upper Room Discourse that we're examining in John chapter 15, where Jesus makes this very clear. You are already clean because of the Word, which I have spoken to you. What part of that statement do you not understand? You are clean because of the work of the Holy Spirit within you, yes. You are clean because of the sovereign work of Almighty God within you, yes. This is not a contradiction of that, a denial of that. But you are clean because of the word that I have spoken unto you. Is, is that in the Bible as well? Yes. Yes. And so all of that to drive home the point of the place of God's word in the work of conversion, and I make it stronger than that, the necessity, the necessity of God's word in the work of conversion, which of course falls back upon human messengers to obey what Christ said and proclaim the gospel, go and make disciples of all nations, go into all the world and proclaim this gospel that God may use it to save sinners sovereignly by the work of his Spirit, but he has chosen to combine that work of his Spirit with the message of the gospel to be proclaimed by human instruments and to be the message which the Holy Spirit enables people to believe. So, the Word of God, the powerful Word of God, the, necess the necessary Word of God in the work of conversion. But then we move on to the second aspect of the power of God's Word, which is in the work of sanctification. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, and then the verse concludes by saying, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, that part we dealt with a long time ago, and I'm not going to go back to that now to talk about this prayer aspect and this prayer promise and how that's to be understood. But what we're focusing on at the moment is the work of sanctification, and that's the what we call progressive sanctification, the ongoing work of God's Spirit, again, it is the indwelling Holy Spirit doing this work, in the hearts and lives of believers to prune them, that's one of the emphases of this passage, to remove from them those things that are contrary to Christ and to 
redeemed born-again believers, the things that pertain to the, to the former life, the old Adam, to remove those things and to make us little by little, day by day, month by month, year by year, more like Christ, this work of progressive sanctification that takes place in our lives, of which Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 8, that God is conforming us unto the image or to the likeness of his Son. He is conforming us. He has not conformed us, past tense. He is conforming us. It's going on presently. Progressive sanctification, the present work of of pruning, of correcting, of convicting of sin, of moving us in more godly directions, of enabling us to be more Christ-like and more fruitful, that work is going on progressively in our lives, again, by the work of the Holy Spirit and cannot progress without it. But once again, what instrument, what what tool, what what um, what factor is God using in all this that is so critically important? His word, his word, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. The word of God, the word of Christ, the word, the Bible, scripture. That's what God uses, which is no doubt why the state of Christianity is rather unhealthy in America today because so many Christians, so many churches, so many preachers don't see the supreme importance of God's Word as the instrument which God uses to strengthen and change and grow Christians. Like the work of conversion, which is often thought to depend upon personality and upon persuasion and upon any number of other things, emotions, appealing to people emotionally, in order to get them to make that all-important decision for Christ, instead of relying upon the work of, the, uh, upon the instrumentality of God's Word in the hands of God's Spirit, God's Spirit working through the Word to convert the souls of men, they likewise, in this work of sanctification, often seem to envision it more as being a matter of moving people emotionally, Many times the idea is to construct our church services in such a way that people are powerfully impacted emotionally through the music, through the atmosphere, through the excitement, and through messages that oftentimes are, are more geared to to produce emotional responses. And the idea is to jack people up emotionally, to give them that that emotional high, that religious high that just winds them up and, and gives them spiritual energy and victory and power and away they go charging out into the world to combat the devil and sin. And then, of course, because this kind of activity, this kind of energy, doesn't last very long. It drains away very quickly. Everybody 
that, that thinks this way seems to recognize that. So you you don't you can't you can't stay away from church very long. You've got to come back for another dose. So here you come, come back for some more. You've got to get jacked up again. And and that's the way many people view this matter of sanctification, if they even think of it in terms of sanctification at all, instead of paying attention to the Bible, which tells us it is the ongoing ministry of God's Word, which actually does the sanctifying work, that actually does the pruning work, that actually does the improving work in the lives of God's people, the strengthening work, the empowering work, to take weak Christians and make them strong Christians over time. To take timid Christians and make them bold Christians over time. To make slightly fruitful Christians bountifully fruitful Christians over time. How does that happen? By his word. By his word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Same instrument, the powerful instrumentality of God's Word. Until next week, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you His eternal peace.